0: welcome to nothing to hide a data privacy podcast it's becoming increasingly difficult to protect our privacy on the internet and it can even be harder to understand companies opaque data collection practices as a consumer the nothing to hide podcast is organized by researchers at the proper data center in this podcast we discuss privacy and security issues thank you so much for listening in if you like this podcast please check out our website for more resources at nothingtohide.online. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the panelists and hosts. They do not necessarily reflect the views of affiliated and funding institutions, such as the National Science Foundation.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Joanna and I have Umar and Hugh with me today as hosts. Today we have a special episode recording live with a panel of guests in front of an audience. We'll be unpacking the current state of privacy and exploring paths forward. Our panelists are four professors from the Proper Data Frontier Project, which is the research center that we're a part of. Proper Data spans seven institutions, 11 professors, and more than 50 researchers. With us today are Athena Markopoulou, Zubair Shafiq, David Chopnes, and Nikolaos Lautaris. Thank you for joining us for this special recording and for our audience and listeners, could you please all introduce yourself with a brief overview of your research?
2: Hi, my name is Athena Markopoulou. I am a professor here at UCI and also the director of Proper Data. My research has been traditionally networking and over the years moved on into privacy, which is the topic of Proper Data.
3: All right. I'm Dave Chaufnes. I'm also a professor. I'm at Northeastern University. Not surprisingly, I also do research on privacy. And like Athena, I also tripped and fell into it from a background in networking.
4: So my name is Zubair Shafiq. from faculty at UC Davis. I do research on security and privacy, no surprise, but more specifically, my group specializes in security and privacy in online advertising at Tech. So that's kind of our niche.
5: Yes. Hi, my name is Nikos Lautaris. I'm a professor at IMDEA Networks Institute in Madrid. I stumbled upon privacy 10 years ago while I was working in Telefonica. And over there with some of these people, And many more, we created the Data Transparency Lab. That was a community that came together to build the transparency software that now I'm very happy to see it progressing into proper data and other endeavors. And I'm very happy to be here and on this panel.
6: So our first question is for Athena, uh, but other PIs are also welcome to jump in. What is proper data and what do you guys do at Proper Data?
2: All right. So Proper Data is a large research project funded by NSF. It is a Saatchi Frontiers project, which is the largest of its kind. It brings together, originally it was four institutions, now there are six, around 10 PIs and around 50 students. The topics are around privacy. We do uh, research in three thrusts. We try to develop methodologies and tools that improve transparency. That means to bring light to how our data are collected and how they are used. Second, we build privacy-enhancing technologies that give us control over how our data are collected and used. And increasingly, we are working on this third trust that has to do with policy. How can our technologies be used to inform privacy law and and policy? And what do we do on a day-to-day basis? We talk to our students, we write papers, and we think big thoughts, and we enjoy each other like today.
3: The only thing that I'd add is, in addition to what we do internally, of course, a really important part of this project is to take products of our research and make sure that it helps the general public. Like We care about privacy, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Um, And so that means that a lot of our work is also outward facing, whether it's press, interaction with policymakers, regulators, and so forth. It's a really important aspect. It's important not to just do research that gets published in academic venues, but to also have impact in the real world. Thank you so much.
6: So our next question is about the state of the privacy on the internet. The state of the privacy on the internet is actually terrible. In most cases, we cannot use the internet without sharing our data. In your opinion, how did we get to this state?
4: Well, we made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) But I'll just highlight, I think maybe a few main, like major mistakes that were made. Not by us, but folks who were kind of like designing the internet at the early stages. I think the first one is the technical mistake that was made when web standards were being designed. And one thing I would point out is when cookies were being designed and third-party cookies were being designed, folks at that time did realize that there are going to be serious privacy repercussions of how they will be exploited for cross site tracking. But at that point, nothing was done to mitigate this in any meaningful way. And I think we are right now, for the last 20 plus years, looking at the consequences of that bad choice.
6: Could you elaborate on why didn't anybody do anything about it?
4: Well, they did, there were debates, there were some, uh, I think, more privacy oriented people who did try to make a case that maybe we should not have unrestricted third party cookies, and there were some efforts to try to curtail them, but they never got to the stage where they got any interactions in the standards bodies. And I think this also leads to the second point is the business model. If there is too much money to be made, it is incredibly hard to make a change. And I will just like take a step back and say, I think one of the other mistakes that we made was the business model of the web. In my opinion, we did not do enough to explore alternate business models. I think advertising was the thing that we had huge success with. A lot of companies figured out how to do advertising and how to do it really well. Uh, And what really ended up happening is any new company, whenever they will make a product, they would realize, okay, the easiest way to monetize what we are doing is through advertising. And that basically sucked the oxygen out of the room. Like no other alternate business model was seriously explored. And I think that's the other big mistake. And last, but not the least, is lack of regulation which of course is I think the third pillar of our project as well for various reasons. I think maybe, yeah, well-intentioned people, but they just did not foresee enough how this could all get derailed and what kind of like serious privacy abuses might arise and lack of regulation. And there was this whole self-regulation thing that didn't really work out. And now we are finally getting our act together. So I would say like, these are the three big things, technical, economic, and policy, I think. I think also wants to add something.
2: Yeah, very quickly. Um. So at the higher level, what has happened is not surprising. It takes some time to realize the implications that new technologies have on society. So when we when the industrial revolution happened, it was not clear how it will affect climate. We see that over time, regulation follows. When cars were created. We they didn't think uh, the uh, seatbelts beforehand take some time to realize when the internet was created, all the protocols and all the architectures were not around, around privacy and security it was an afterthought. So I think it's part of a normal process. The internet started as a research project for those of you that know your computer network classes. And when it transitioned to a commercial environment, something had to fund it. And the first business model that came out was the advertising. That does not mean that needs to stay the same forever. And that's why we're doing this work
5: yeah I completely agree with uh, what Athena says. Obviously, there is a problem, as Zuber mentions. and but to be fair to to the history of the internet, let's say and the web, let's step back a little bit and accept that the internet, you know, the success of the internet and the web is amazing. These things were invented decades ago for completely different things funded by governments and the military. And here we are today doing uh, amazing things using, these technologies that were developed for something else. So we should respect the original, the power of the ideas of the fundamentals behind the internet and the web. While acknowledging that if we were to design everything from scratch now, we would build it in a completely different way, right? We wouldn't do the same. But the investment that has gone into all this infrastructure, be it the network layer, uh, the web, and the services that are running above it, It's so humongous that it's not that we can step in and say, okay, oh, we have this new idea about how to do it better, let's do it. Because, uh, you know, what would the cost of this be? And the cost is not only in terms of hardware and software, it's like retraining all the people that know how to operate the existing business ecosystem, uh, changing all the business models. So these things are, you know, hard to do. They are doable. They have happened before. You know, networks in the past, they were telecommunication networks, right? To connect point A to B, you you needed to have a dedicated circuit, which seemed like something that was a law of nature or that God gave it to people. And at some point, it stopped being this way, right? And it got substituted with packets, the internet, multiplexing, and all the things that we have, which kind of makes it clear that paradigm shifts can happen, but it takes time, Okay. And when I started talking about privacy in pre-GDPR times, anytime that I would say something, you know, there would always be somebody on the audience and say, but but people don't care about privacy. People don't care about this. People don't care about the other. So at the end of my talks, I had a section that I made a a list of other things that people didn't care about. And I included there, you know, smoking, uh, wearing safety belts on cars. I found... Toys that people were giving to their kids from the 50s and the 60s, and this they were power drills or you could uh, where you would melt uh, glass or iron and give it to the kid to play, right? And these were acceptable things back then. And I believe in the same sense, some of the things that uh, used to be acceptable in terms of privacy five or ten years ago, in ten years in the future, we will look back and maybe we will laugh with how we were behaving. So I think we're gonna catch up. And it's up to us to help to make this thing happen faster.
6: Thank you so much. I think you all raised a lot of interesting points about policies, monetization and regulation. And of course, emerging technologies. Right now we'll like to get into emerging technologies and then get back to issues about monetization and policy. So follow up about emerging technologies. Basically, we are seeing a lot of cool technologies emerge, like smart speakers and virtual reality, uh, which provides a lot of benefits like accessibility and convenience. Uh, Are we making the same mistakes in these technologies that we made earlier? And uh, what what can we do to make them better?
3: So it's hard to answer. As a society, we aren't making these technologies. It's companies that are making these technologies. And I think they are making the same mistakes um, in the sense that they are profit-driven companies. They have to make money. And as Zubair and others have pointed out, a tried and true method now for making money with connected technologies is monetization of data and so that is what we are going to continue to see and AR VR and whatever the next technologies are until we find some way to disincentivize that um that said you know I think the other part of your question is like well sort of what are those mistakes what are the things that that might concern us most um something I was thinking about recently as we all are here in person for the first time in a long time um is that going forward a lot of interactions that we have will be mixed reality that will be in person and there'll be virtual presence as well how do you enable that well think about having a room where we all gather that has high resolution cameras that can see everything and essentially make a remote participant uh, feel as if they are physically in the room and that sounds like a great thing for those of us who are not able to travel where that's the only way that you can participate in these settings the technology itself is not problematic but now start thinking about The phone or the laptop that's in front of you and how right now you pretty much assume that the people next to you or maybe behind you, immediately behind you could see your screen. But what if the things that are watching you are literally everywhere and they're in high resolution and they're recording all the time? Is that going to change how you behave? Is that going to open up new risks that today we just don't have in the physical world? And so um, what I'm really worried about going forward is moving from our reality to these mixed or virtual realities where the set of problems that can that can happen, just proliferate, be potentially beyond things that we can imagine in the physical world.
4: I do wanna say that I do think the stakes are higher. We had desktops, maybe like mainframe, if you really wanna go back and then yeah, eventually laptops, mobile, a smartwatch, uh, I guess, AR, VR, oculus whatever and maybe very soon we will have a neural link chip in our brain too so i think the the personal nature of the data is just like increase i think we the stakes are high so when you ask like are we making the same mistakes and even if we are not making the same mistakes or we are making fewer mistakes i just think that going forward as these technologies become more embedded become more personal uh, the risks are higher.
0: Great point about the stakes being much higher now. With that being said, what are existing technologies or tools that can be used to protect against these issues or these emerging technologies? Well,
5: there are different types of tools. There are the the transparency tools that demonstrate in an easy way how severe a problem is. Okay, And there are tools that have been developed that tell you whether a particular display advertisement that you see on your screen whether it has been targeted or not. Why are you seeing it? Why you? Okay. Of course, the advertisers, they have developed some systems that they pretend to tell you why, but it's not clear that these explanations make sense. They are complete and so on. So researchers have shown, have developed tools that go into much more detail and they tell you, oh, you see this app, this ad here, because you visited this and that and that uh, website before. And this puts you in this demographic group for, according to some model of marketers. So... All these tools kind of bring up problems and leaves it to each one of us to decide how important a problem is or is not. Because, you know, in the end, having a target advertisement displayed to you that relates to something that you were, you don't deem as invasive, right? So if you are in the market to buy a new pair of shoes. And the advertising system understands that and gives you a nice offer. Well, actually, this is welcome for most of us. But when you see advertisements that relate to things that you consider uh, to be very private, you know, Health-related stuff, political beliefs, and there are there's a category of uh, personal information that's called sensitive personal information that most regulations protect, and they have specific clauses about not collecting information about these topics and not processing the information. Then, if you have transparency tools and they and and they kind of demonstrate that the ecosystem is not respecting this thing, then this is call to arms, right? It means that there is a problem there, and something needs to be done. Now, what what can be done, you know, on the one hand, technology can provide some solutions and we're going to the safeguarding tools, the the second category, you know, all the tools that are there to protect your privacy without breaking the internet. And again, many people in this room uh, have been working on this, blocking cookies, blocking advertisements, obfuscation, all the blacklist, whitelist, and so on that exists out there that are certainly helping and then there are what the governments and the and the, the public is doing you know in in europe we have all these data protection authorities every country has an office and authority that is in charge of uh, receiving complaints and then acting upon the complaints but uh, which is kind of the police of the web and the internet let's say but again it's not so simple because the problems are so complex and usually these authorities, they don't have anywhere near enough capacity in terms of manpower to uh, go after everything that is going on, which is an open question. I mean, how in the end, you know, we may have laws and regulation to protect privacy, but in the end, if you don't have the equivalent of the police to enforce the law, the law is kind of questionable how much will protect you or not.
2: So uh, Nikos gave a good overview of existing solutions which are all fine, but in my opinion, they are not sufficient because for two reasons. First, because they are a patchwork of solutions. They are like address a particular point. You have a, a blockers for your um, browser, for your phone. They don't connect to a bigger picture. They are not privacy by design. They don't connect to each other. And the second limitation is that um, usually the solutions that users have are close to the edge, and they only see very small part of the problem. Um, The more interesting parts would happen with our data is what happens after the the first hop, all the sharing among many entities, and we have no visibility or no tools for that part. Uh,
3: Just, I guess we're going into the limitations. How many of you in the room use an ad blocker or something like that? Show of hands. Almost everyone. Very very biased population. How many of you feel that you're good because like that's enough, that you've blocked the ads and you're good, you're not being tracked or anything like that? of course, like no one's raising their hands. And so, I mean, to, to add on to what Athena was saying, this is this is a failure. Like we are in a situation where we're using these patch patchwork of things to try to claw back our privacy. And it's a losing battle because whatever you put in place is not going to solve the systemic problems that are there. Um, so this is why we're also working with things like regulation, So limit what is allowed to be gathered in the first place, limit how it can be used and shared, because ultimately we're not going to solve this ourselves unilaterally. It has to be a multifaceted approach where it's not only technologies to deal with maybe uh, problems that have not yet been regulated, but also make sure that we move as much as we can into a sphere, into a world where, you know, these, the parties that are collecting data about us and using in ways that we don't like are not allowed to do so.
4: The only thing I want to add is, yes, there is a lot of room for improvement, and a lot needs to be fixed. But I think there is good news as compared to five to 10 years ago. We have come a very long way, in my opinion. Um, I do research on web browsers and I was recently doing a survey and I actually realized now all major browsers actually have a feature to block third-party cookies. And in fact, most browsers block third-party cookies by default, which is pretty exciting. I mean, it used to be pretty challenging five, ten years ago. You would have to install some extension. It would not work. So as like these um, technical solutions interventions are becoming more mature, They are getting shipped into browsers or mobile operating systems. So I think we are getting there. Yes, there is room for improvement, and we need to do more systemic changes to solve this problem more holistically. But I think It's an exciting time and our work is impacting industry and we should feel good. Yes, there is more work to do, but the status quo is improving.
2: The people that are going to change things going forward is people of your generation and of your skill set. And I'm not talking to my fellow panelists here, I'm talking to the students in the room. Uh, You are going to go in various sectors related to privacy in the industry where things happen, in nonprofits, in regulation. You will be able to contribute to those solutions from several points of view. So it will be up to you to take it to the next step.
4: And I will just add to it, uh, as we are talking to students, like why actually they have a really important role to play. And I think some of my panelists probably share this experience. When we were in grad school or getting out of grad school or starting looking into security and privacy, it was like a very frustrating time do research in this space. It was initially you would have to convince people, like, why is it even matters? Like, thankfully, a lot of those battles have been, yeah, we have dealt with them. We have won most of those battles. And now, actually, in my opinion, is a very transformational time in this space where the status quo is changing. And we have once in a generation opportunity to actually have a lasting impact. And yeah, you are all basically going to do that research. So I think it's a great space to be in right now, because the work that you will do will actually have an impact in the real world and not just in ephemeral manner, it will be a long lasting impact that you will have.
0: Thank you. Those are really great points. I wanted to go back to your comment about companies or browsers allowing users to remove their party cookies. We see that a lot of companies are now putting out the effort to help protect user privacy. And there is a lot of discussion around using privacy-preserving technologies for online advertising, like local processing on the browser or on the device. Do you think they are sufficient in protecting user privacy? Or do you think we will still need other tools like ad blockers?
3: I think for any technology, whatever it is, um, we have to keep auditing. Whether you try to make something private by design and the spec is good, Um, and it's the implementation that's flawed, or whether it's something that we didn't foresee when we designed something to be private. The simple fact is that information wants to get out there. It wants to spread. It's just the nature of the beast. And so time and time again, we found you think something is supposed to do what it's supposed to be doing, like TLS and security, and you find that there's all kinds of flaws in practice. Um, And so that's why a major part of our work on this project is auditing. You have to always check. So I think All of those efforts you talk about are really important and we should keep pushing those forward, but we should always verify. We always have to keep checking.
4: And just to give a concrete example, right? So you're talking about now you can block cookies in browsers, but a lot of us are doing research on fingerprinting. So there are some alternate tracking techniques. So like Dave is saying, yes, we need to keep looking out, make sure that there are no other alternate mechanisms because this is the nature of the beast. So there is this cat and mouse game that happens. This is nothing new in this area. This happens in all cybersecurity areas. So really, we just have to keep at it and make sure that we are making progress in the right direction.
6: Yeah, you raised an interesting point. Basically, as soon as our protective tools are deployed, adversaries find new methods and even well-intent tech companies come up with new ways to bypass privacy-enhancing technologies. Do you think we will be able to break that pattern in the future? Maybe the policy today, we are using all these fantastic app,
5: uh, services every day, and they make our life better. they are making they're making us more productive, and we are saying that or oh, they're getting the data is not fair. We should stop it. Okay, we can stop it. But if we completely stop it, then either we're not going to have these services or we need to pay for them. So we need to be a little bit fair to the business models and the companies that are developing these things. So we need to find some balance. We cannot stop all privacy leakage without going back to paying or not having the services right but we need to get rid of the unnecessary part I think on the one hand there are many business models of today that can be executed in a, in a better way right without so much leakage I, I, my current focus of my research is more on the economics of privacy than the actual protection and so on and I think that m- many of the problems that we have they relate to the broken economics of the thing right so it's very easy to implement mass surveillance. And if you combine this with the fact that whenever the a flashlight application gets your GPS location, it doesn't have to pay. This creates what is called an economics and all you can eat buffet, right? So if we fix this thing. Some privacy problems will go away. And then there are other privacy problems that we need to look at privacy, not as a, a zero one thing. Okay, we need to put it in context. Again, I'm returning to what I mentioned before. If somebody gives me an advertisement for a new pair of sneakers that I want to buy, that's good. But they should not mess with other things that are more private. So we need to uh, deal with the things that really scare some of us, right? That, that, that could have a very bad uh, implication in our lives. And the other things that, you know, are needed there for the business models to run, let them run, okay? So it's not a zero one, let's stop everything or uh, without a
2: context. And um, just a quick comment, and I think we're moving more, to, more towards, we will be moving more towards privacy by design architectures, so there is a more structure and easier way to control things.
4: But I do want to say, like, coming back to the original question, like I said, arms race will play out, but the nature of the <laughs> adversary has changed in privacy. So these are, um, let's say, tech companies who are somewhat well-regulated, they we can maybe even say some of them are trying to do the right thing or maybe some subset of people inside these companies are trying to do the right thing at the very least they are not immune to the law and regulation and policy so what that means is it's not going to be an ever never ending arms race so there is there are some there is a, some constraints in this battlefield that we are playing with and i think that gives me hope that it will not be a frustrated ending to this exercise we will hopefully have a meaningful improvement in how the privacy, how it's handled online over the next few years. And yeah, privacy by design, all these other things that we're talking about, they will all, I think, play a meaningful role.
3: Something for everyone to consider is just when there's an arms race, one way to fight it is to keep fighting, you know, keep playing the game. The other one is to change the game. So if there's an arms race, it's because there's an incompatibility in incentives. We don't want people to take our data. They don't want to give us something for nothing. So then the question is, how can we shift that game? How can we change the incentive structure? Um, That's the kind of stuff we're looking at in policy or data economics or any number of ways that we could do this. But that's just something for everyone to keep in mind because we don't want to play the cat and mouse game. That's not a winning game. So the question is, how do we change the game?
1: And yeah, that leads us really nicely into our next question, which is, in an ideal world, what do you think could be those paradigm shifts that we do make to the business model? What are the kind of um, alternatives, perhaps, or other improvements that you think that you'd like to see in an ideal world?
5: Let me use a, an example of a similar cat and mouse problem that took place 10 to 15 years ago, mm-hmm. which was between the media industry, you know, studios, uh, music production companies, and peer-to-peer technologies. OK, so ten, fifteen 15 years ago, peer-to-peer systems like Napster, like BitTorrent, they almost drove the media industry bankrupt by allowing somebody to create a digital file, upload it, and then start sharing it without paying the original author, producer, actor, uh, studio, whatnot, right? So this almost destroyed the media industry, OK? And for some time, th- there was this friction and, and battle between peer-to-peer and the and the companies that were trying to stop it, eventually this thing went away. And how did it go away? Do, do, can somebody think how it, this thing disappeared? New yeah. business model. It went away when Spotify, Netflix, all the streaming services came it came to our life, and they kind of offered us the same service that the peer-to-peer applications were giving you illegally. They offered it at an affordable price and integrated with our devices, which made, you know, having to do all the illegal stuff completely redundant, right? And the problem was solved. So this thing has happened before. So we need to come up with a Spotify's of privacy in order to, you know, on the one hand, allow advertisers and digital marketers to do their business and us pay a cost, a lower cost. You know, DVDs and CDs used to cost how much more than the monthly subscription that we're paying now to get access to the entire catalog, right? So the the price, in terms of privacy now, has to be right.
2: I just want to agree with that. Uh, So the question about sustainability doesn't apply to the whole planet. It applies to some, to some population, but for several of us, we could afford a, a, a subscription instead of advertising-based model. So a, a mixture that allows things to continue working and protects our privacy.
4: I just want to clarify. I think advertising is great. Um, there is nothing wrong with advertising. It's not like we need to find alternate business models just for the sake of we can actually fix advertising. Advertising by itself, I think as Nikos was also pointing out, it's not inherently bad. Uh, There are some other things associated with it, which are bad, which we need to fix. And I will just throw one data point out there. Um, This number is somewhat controversial, but just take it at its face value. There was this statistic that was quoted that if you block third-party cookies, the ad revenue of publisher drops by 52%. So this was a study that came out of industry. So that 52% number that the industry is reporting right now is, in my opinion, the upper bound. It cannot get worse than that. Which means if we do adapt how advertising works, make it more privacy-respecting, I think we will be able to actually recoup most of those lost revenues. So maybe advertising can actually still work as the business model, but just being done in a more privacy-respecting way.
0: Following in the lines of values that are being provided by these services or even technologies, some people claim that there is benefit right, to surveillance data collection practices. Like you're able to detect criminals, drug traffickers. So what are your thoughts on the balancing act between societal values like community safety and individual privacy rights?
2: So I will just share a thought on that. State surveillance is a different beast than surveillance capitalism. <laughs> so. Um, all the solutions we're proposing for the commercial type of surveillance will not apply to the state type of surveillance. And now we're looking to the state as the good actor to define policy.
4: It seems like the examples you're quoting, they are more about government surveillance. And at least in the U.S., the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment uh, actually protects us against unauthorized surveillance unless there is probable cause. So right?
0: uh, one quick thing, we can also talk about like commercial products as well, like Amazon Ring or Apple recently, you know, wanted to automatically look at your photos automatically to say, okay, can you detect that, you know, someone is bad?
4: Um, Just to complete that train of thought. So I think for government surveillance, thankfully, at least in the US, we have laws and regulations against it. And there is no debate to be had. Unless you have probable cause, you cannot just surveil everyone in the society to catch criminals and terrorists and whatever. It will give us 100% safety, but it's the proverbial big brother. On the commercial front, I think, yeah, that is like a much more challenging problem. I would say, again, my personal view is that techniques that build absolute protection, and I'll, for example, give an example of end-to-end encryption. Uh, I think they are really important to be built, and it is really important that Those kind of techniques are out there for everyone to use. And yes, they will be used by criminals and terrorists. And that's all right, uh, in my opinion. And I would let someone else on the panel uh, disagree with me on this. Where to start? So, of course,
3: technologies can be used for good and bad. Um, And, you know, one thing that you said that struck me was you could have 100% safety or security or whatever, if you have you know, universal surveillance. That's not true, right? You can have algorithms that operate on that universal surveillance and incorrectly identify as individuals because the data that they're based on is biased, because they're based on a society that is discriminatory. And so there are, in fact, going to be harms, probably no matter what you do. The more surveillance, the more opportunity there is for harms. And so I think this is a really hard problem. I mean, I've been asked before... You know, what if, you know, this kind of location tracking that's often done by apps is the way that someone finds a person who's been abducted? Why would you want companies to not then surveil your location all the time when you could save this person's life? Um, That is true. That's a terrible situation. And in this case, this had actually happened to the person who's asking me the question. And there's, you know, no doubt that that kind of surveillance would have been helpful in that situation. Um, But that location information could also be used. in a repressive regime to identify protesters and take away their rights or lives even. So it is a balancing act and there's no one answer here. The only thing that I can universally push back on is that more surveillance does not make for a better society. We learned that lesson in Europe. Um, We (coughs) seem to forget it now, but it's something that I think is really important that we continue to think about it every step of the way. And so, um, it, the answer is not no surveillance. The answer is not 100% surveillance, but we have to take nuanced, context-specific approaches to figuring out how to make society better with the additional information that we can get from our wonderful new technologies, while also, at the best we can, minimizing the harms that come out of them.
6: Next question is actually about the research that uh, a lot of you have been producing over the last few years, especially students, of course, peers as well what impact have you seen from your work so far and what are you hoping to achieve in the future
2: all right we are all proud of the impact we try to have through the technologies we develop that hopefully they are going to be adopted by industry or will influence policy making in my opinion the latter might be the more long lasting one But the thing that I think has the the most important impact in my mind is uh, you guys, the graduate students that we train, who are the next generation that will take it to the next step. You are much better versed not only on the technology part of it, but also you are very aware of the uh, impact your work has. You are running this podcast. You understand that your work has to matter and it has to translate to something actionable. You're a much better version than I was at your age. So I'm very proud of all of you. And I think that's our broader impact, the cohort of students we are we are training.
3: Yeah, once again, it's the, the question was directed at us, but it's really all of you who are actually doing the work, to be clear, the people in the room who are students and postdocs and research scientists. For me, and for many of you, as an individual, I think we've all been frustrated with privacy online. We we all want to make our lives a little bit better, make the technologies we work with a little bit better. And that's, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that I've seen, whether it's, you know, you responsibly disclose problems that you see and you see companies change their behavior, you speak with reporters and get nationally recognized stories, globally recognized stories about some of the abuses of privacy that we see that lead to policy changes, lead to companies changing their behavior based on public opinion. Um, All of these things are hugely important and we've done all of these things as a group and I hope we are able to continue to do so. I'm I'm very excited to see what will come out of the next three years of this project.
5: Yeah, I just want to add to what was discussed or mentioned already that this is a particular area where it's easy to find meaning right and and see the impact you work in privacy you do something that's intellectually challenging you like it it requires a lot of skill it requires a lot of talent and people care the people that are not doing a phd care which mean that which is really great so it's i think it's a very great area to be
0: working on
1: great thank you so much for those answers i think we have time to take one or two audience questions
0: um, so, Alex Camero from Northeastern. I was wondering if you, you've you touched on this a little bit, but part of our work is shifting the paradigm of design from just the purely technical perspective to a social technical perspective. And that is not a perspective that tech companies seem to be willing to adopt. And so I was wondering if you had any ideas on how to change the incentive structure to make that really
6: happen.
2: For some of the companies serving societal values is a differentiating factor. For example, privacy has been a flagship mission for private browsers, have an edge compared to competitors. So I think bringing societal value can have also business value for these companies. And the more aware the public is, the more this is going to happen.
4: And I think we need to create disincentives rather than incentives for companies to care about. That's just how I think the way it is. And the policy work that a bunch of us are doing here, I think, is contributing to that. For example, helping design new policies, laws, and regulations. For example, all the excellent work that many of us did for the FTC ANPR. I think that's a great example of that. And I know a bunch of us are also working on practice of existing laws and regulations. For example, some of the DOJ stuff that Alan is doing. I think that's also great. It is actually leading to a meaningful change by creating these disincentives for companies to, yeah, they have to care about it now because there are these disincentives and there are these sticks that they have to care about. That's the only way, I think, at least in the near term that the change will happen, that they will start to care. (coughs) I would say another thing, and I've preached this to a bunch of the students who I know are probably going to end up in one of these tech companies is a company is like a huge beast. Any big tech company, it's not like one monolith. It's a group of people. They are good people. My hope is that you can go and contribute to the moral fiber of these companies if there is something there and you can make your voice heard.
5: Yeah, I, g- I agree with what uh, Zuber and Athena mentioned before. I and, and I'm optimistic and things take take time. When we are talking about societal changes to a huge industry, they take time and they take effort and persistence. And the best way is to, to do it from the inside. And all these things that, you know, one day companies are fighting, then sometime later in the future, they they may see an opportunity. You know, companies may say that as long as there is are societal interest towards having more privacy... You know, uh, some company will say, wait a minute, this is an opportunity for us to differentiate and uh, do better in our segment by not providing just cheaper or more of something, but something that is more safe, right? You know, in the food industry, this has played out, right? You, you you get the supermarkets that are organic and the supermarkets that are not organic, right? And so we can have organic and non-organic online services as well.
6: So there is a there is a way to get there, I think. We have time for one more question. Our guest from NSF. Uh, Thank you, everybody. So I was wondering, this is a general curiosity. So I'm going to tell you a draconian solution and you tell me whether this is uh, acceptable. Say, for instance, none of the advertisers ended up seeing the real data. They only saw it in encrypted format and was able to run the algorithms of ad matching obliviously. Would you still raise privacy
3: concerns?
2: What you described sounds like a privacy enhancing solution to a problem. So we would welcome such a such scenario. Uh,
3: well, yes. And uh, how they get that data to encrypt it in the first place? How was it encrypted? How do we know that the algorithms that operated on it aren't sending data elsewhere? So, you know, before when I talked about auditing, I love examples like this, where you could imagine a, a privacy preserving technology. I am also, a, you know, I'm a realist, I'm an empiricist. Uh, and I know that things fail. <laughs> Whatever you think you designed theoretically to be perfectly private or secure is going to run into some problem in the real world. And so we always have to keep checking. So that's my perspective on this is that um, the, the more privacy enhancing or preserving more secure, the better. Love that stuff. Our jobs are never going to go away as researchers when it comes to auditing, because we can't control the universe of all things that could go wrong. And historically, as human beings, we have a pretty good track record of doing things wrong. So that's my take on that.
4: And let's just say there is nothing wrong with implementation. It is implemented perfectly. We audit it, it's certified, whatever. I will still push back. And I think that's what you were hoping that I would do. So I will do that. I just want to make a distinction between data collection and data usage. So I think a lot of people think that whatever this MPC or trusted execution, just all this, you could just throw a nice cocktail of all of them and then just fix it. That solves the data collection problem because everything is encrypted, pseudonymized, whatever. I think that's part of the problem, but personal information is still being used. So I think it's more than collection. You can solve the collection problem by doing this, but are you okay with someone knowing information about some particular disease or some other sensitive information and then you randomly see an ad about it? Is that okay? I hope like the answer is no, right? So I think that's where the usage piece of the puzzle is also really important.
5: Okay, so I've been too reasonable. Until now, so I'll wear my old privacy hat again and say no. Because because if you show me an ad and this ad is about something, then I will say, okay, the very fact that this ad was delivered to me is linking information that somewhere there is a reason for this ad to be leaked to me. So even if you don't have the data, just from the fact that you saw this ad and knowing that the system believes that I would be interested in this ad, means that you can make inferences about me.
0: That concludes this week's special episode of Nothing to Hide, recorded in front of a live audience. We would like to thank our panelists, Athena Markopoulou, Zubair Shafik, David Shovnis, and La Latoris for sharing their insightful comments on the future of privacy. To our listeners, we hope this episode provided a good overview of the importance of privacy and how research at the proper data center advances it. This includes, but not limited, to developing new methodologies and tools to improve the transparency of data collection practices, building privacy-enhancing technologies to help users control how their data is collected, and how this research can inform privacy laws and policies. To listen to more episodes, access blog content, or find additional resources, please visit our site at nothingtohide.online